Hey guys, before we get started, I wanted to talk about a skincare line I've been using. We all know that lines and wrinkles are a normal part of aging, and as I'm moving toward my mid-40s, I'm trying to age as gracefully as possible, so I started to consider Botox. Not wanting to make that financial commitment, I started to look into alternative options and found Frownies Facial Patches. I've been personally using Frownies Facial Patches, their apple serum and under-eye gels for about a year. I wear the facial patches while I sleep. They hold your facial muscles in place and train them to lie in a smooth, flat position. I started wearing them five nights a week and have since transitioned to using them once or twice a week for maintenance. I've noticed a big reduction in my forehead lines, and I use their apple serum and under eye patches to target other facial lines. If you want to try them out, just use a link in our show notes and get 10% off, or just use our code CRIME10. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Crime and Coffee Couple. My name's Allison. And my name is Mike. Hello, Mike. Hey, Allison. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? uh, Good, good. I don't say your name a lot. You're a person that usually says names. Like you always say, Mike, um, can you get this for me? Or like, Mike, my back hurts. Or like, Mike. No, it's more like, Mike. Yeah, shut up the alarm. (laughs) Mike. It's never like at night in bed or anything. So it's always something else. (laughs) Mike, where are you? I never know where you are. (laughs) Mike. And it's usually me hiding in some like remote place in the house. Yeah. And it's not like our house is like lavishly large. Like, where do you go? There's places. I'm not going to tell you. I can never find you. Yeah. It's a a husband secret. So (laughs) um, we are the Crime and Coffee Couple. We come at you every Sunday at 9 a.m. with a new episode here on um, whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Pretty much all of them. And um, we also have a little page patron uh area you can become a patron or uh you know support us and get access to like 30 plus episodes it's true and if you did become a patron this week usually we'll give you a shout out but we're we're pre-recording this so just wait till next week and we'll get you we're going to my kind of town chicago Chicago is well actually outside of chicago yeah Um, the suburbs we are flying into chicago yeah yeah that's true we are and my sister's getting married uh she's actually already married but she's getting having the wedding thing this week the reception yeah so um we're flying out for the reception even though they're already married and we get to meet our baby niece that's what i'm looking forward to the most yeah Yeah. so i'm excited about that and cooler weather i will i am very excited about that you are because it's about 90 degrees here every day in florida humid as and i think the day we fly into chicago it's like a high of 63 so Um, i'm gonna have to beep that just so you know so like youtube if you swear in the first like two minutes they don't like your video all right well we're gonna go ahead and beep that yeah i do that's this is me editing it goes Apparently, I'm a foul mouth Very that foul requires mouth. editing. Yeah. Just My a, apologies. That's a little behind the scenes stuff for you guys at home. So, <laughs> yeah, for the uh, couple hundred listeners, we your couple hundred people that we get uh, watching our YouTube videos. That's yeah. it. Um, but, yo, another, well, you mentioned it's hot, humid outside, and it is absolutely here in Florida. And we were going on a walk this morning with our daughter and doggy, and we saw like cop cars outside and uh, not outside our house, a little further down the street. And we're like, what's going on? It's um, some teenagers like popping into cars and stuff and stealing stuff. Like so. right ac- in, in his neighbor's house, uh, literally across the street from his own. He's stealing from those neighbors. Not once, not twice, but four times. This is the fourth time they have caught this kid who lives across the street from them in in their car. And he has previously stolen like close to $1,000 from their car. Yeah. So number one, don't leave money in your car. I, I, I know that this is probably a, an epidemic basically going on all over the United States, like 
teenagers pop into cars and just try to take whatever is valuable. Um, not all of them, just certain bad ones, obviously. Um, well, at least ones that are misbehaving. I don't know. We don't want to label them. But uh, yeah, this is just kind of a quick reminder. Make sure your cars are locked every single night, folks. And, you know, meanwhile, this happened to their house at like 6 a.m. And our kid, who's the same age as this kid, 14, it's 1.42 p.m. And he's still sleeping. <laughs> so <laughs> We were just out there and you were like, oh, my gosh, he's still sleeping. What did you say? You- I was like, this is getting nuts. This he's got to get up. This is nuts. <laughs> I remember being a kid when my parents would wake me up, be like, you got to get up. I'm like, why? I have nothing to do today. Literally nothing. There's no reason for me to be awake. I was like, Cameron, it's almost the next day. Like you've almost slept through this day. And he has these blackout drapes. So it's just like so easy to sleep and it's nice and cool in his room. He's got, got a white fan. noise. Oh yeah. The kid's set, man. He's yeah. set. So he plays the white noise on his Alexa and it's like a cave in there. Our dog even sleeps in when she's in that room. Which is nice because we don't get woken up and having to take her out to pee right away. Yeah, I get to drink my coffee. Speaking of our dog, did you want to mention this week's Amazon addiction? Oh, you should mention it. It is Allison's Amazon addiction where we uh, mentioned some kind of product that you think you're getting a lot of use out of. So we usually put the link in the show notes and you can check it out for yourself. Yeah. And if you have a small pet, like our dog is five pounds or a cat, it's a carry on bag that you could use. Like a lot of people in the review say they use it for their cats to take them to the vet or whatever. It's also TSA approved according to the website. And we're going to use it for our dog is going to travel with us to Chicago. And we had a bag before, but it was like really crunched down and she couldn't see out. It just wasn't good. This one's nice because it fits on your back and she can stand like fully erect. And whoa, I know I just I thought erect. Hey, using, yo. hey, now what's going on? So it she we tried her in it and she looked super comfortable. Yeah, we put fine. our cat in it, too, because he kept like trying to jump into it and he looked comfortable, too. So if you have a small dog or a cat. I think it's great. The first one we ordered, it looked way too big to fit under the airplane seat. Yeah. So our dog's basically like a glorified squirrel. So it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, this one's a nice size for a small dog. Yeah. You got a small dog or small cat. This one should be a good one. But a lot of people said they loved it for taking their cat to the vet or even just going outside with their cat. Yeah. And we'll take it, uh, we'll put it on Instagram to show you guys what's going Live on. Live in action. We'll show you a picture of our cute little poppy in it. So, yeah. so uh, that's all I got. Okay. Well, let's I get say we, we do this thing. So this story is a listener suggestion from Stacy, and this is the disappearance of Mitchell Weiser and Bonnie Bickwit. So this has taken us back to 1973. Mitchell Weiser was 16 years old. His girlfriend of one year was Benita or Bonnie Bickwit. She was 15. That summer, the couple was excited to be going to the Summer Jam Festival in Watkins Glen, New York. The concert featured the Grateful Dead, the Allman Brothers, and the band, which I have never heard of the band. Uh, You probably know a couple of their songs. Probably. So they planned to hitchhike to the festival, and sadly, they vanished, and they were never seen since, and this search has spanned 50 years. This year is officially 50 years. So Mitch and Bonnie met and fell in love at John Dewey High School, which was an alternative school for gifted students in Brooklyn, New York. They were both said to be very bright teenagers, and they had big plans for their futures. Mitch was working as a photographer's assistant on Coney Island, while Bonnie had been um, dropped off at Camp Wellmet. I guess it was like a Jewish summer camp. And so basically in June, she was dropped off there. It's in the Catskill Mountains in Narrowsburg, New York. Sounds nice. And she was working as a mother's helper for the season. So as a mother's helper, it was her job to watch a few of the younger children while their own mothers worked at the camp. So Bonnie had attended the camp for years. When she did transition to working there, she was not very happy with the situation. She felt like she was being taken advantage of. Sometimes she was working as much as 16 hours a day. That's a lot. And that's that's a lot. 
So in July, her mom, her dad, which is Ray and Ted, they made the three-hour drive with their 26-year-old daughter, Cheryl Kagan, as well as Mitch, to visit Bonnie. Normally, Mitch would be at a summer camp himself, but he decided to stay home. He wanted to work and save some money during his final summer before graduation. So they had a nice visit. Her family felt that Bonnie was her usual self. Her best friend was Michelle Festa. She had been spending her summer in Europe. They were exchanging letters back and forth, and she felt that Bonnie seemed herself via letter. So Cheryl, Bonnie's sister, she noticed that Bonnie seemed to have a lot on her mind, and she felt that her behavior seemed a little strange, but thought little of it at the time. So a week before the concert, Bonnie snuck out of camp. She went back home to Brooklyn, knowing that her parents were out of town. So when she was there, she retrieved $80, which was um, to this day would be $550. Wow. So she was saving this money to buy a bike. She let herself in and out of the window in her parents' house. Neighbors did see this. And she hadn't even contacted her sister Cheryl to say, hey, I'm in the area. Let's meet up. Because, of course, we know she's at camp at least three hours away. So it sounds like she literally just came back, got this money, and left. So in addition to being unhappy with her job, Bonnie also worried about her father's health since her father, Ted, suffered from a degenerative neurological disorder. Her worry often caused Bonnie to cry at night while she confided in her friends at camp. That summer, Bonnie wrote a letter to Mitch's best friend, Stuart Carton, who also attended Dewey High School, about the fact that she felt lonely, she was bored, she was considering quitting her job. She asked Stuart if there were any openings at the camp that he was working at and asked, you know, if there are any openings, just let me know because I'm not loving this. The letter was dated the day before she left for her trip with Mitch. So despite their young ages, Bonnie and Mitch's relationship was very serious. They were absolutely committed to one another. They even secretly exchanged wedding rings and kind of thought of each other as husband and wife. That's kind of cute. It is cute. So... There's even a picture of them like hugging. You could just tell. It's like that sweet young love. It's yeah. so, so adorable. So the Summer Jam Festival was a hugely popular event and 150,000 tickets were purchased in advance at wow. $10 each. The rest admitted were in what was become a, becoming a free concert. So approximately... So kind of like um, when... Uh, what's that huge concert? Uh, Lollapalooza? No, the one oh, in the 70s. Um, oh, Woodstock. In New York, yeah. It was bigger than Woodstock. It was bigger than Woodstock? Yes. Wow. At one point, it was like... It met uh, the Guinness Book World Records. Holy cow, because yeah. I know that happened at, at, at Woodstock where it was like, you know, people were just started coming from all over and the mm-hmm. fences were down. It was kind of like a free-for-all. Yeah. So basically about 600,000 fans attended. Wow. And like I just said, it has been in the Guinness Book of World Records for entry to the largest audience of a pop festival. Cool. Basically my worst nightmare <laughs> in the entire, th- like if I could think of anything being hell on earth for me, this would be it. And there's a picture we'll post to Instagram of like an aerial view of the crowd. It like induces panic inside my soul when I look at these people. Like all I could think in my head is like people sweating and smelling and where am I going to the bathroom and where am I sleeping? And it's just a nightmare. Especially this concert, you know, you got Grateful Dead and Allman Brothers, a lot of like peace, you know, hippie type folks are just like, you know, let your body be free, man. You shouldn't have to put on deodorant, man. And I'm like, no, deodorant's good. (laughs) It's good. And we should all take showers and we should all make sure we have access to toilet and And water. I want a clean toilet. I want cold water. (laughs) And and I 
don't want to wait in line for it. Right. And I can't see anything because there's no seats here. And I'm five foot three. <laughs> just a nightmare. So it was going to be extremely highly attended. Traffic was going to be a nightmare. <laughs> That's another thing you hate. Oh, I mean, oh. nobody likes traffic. I like I get panicky. Inside. It truly makes like your life a living hell. It really does. Yeah. So transportation was going to be an issue. Mitch's family tried to talk him out of going because it was so hard to get to. But he was just, you know, he was a teenager. He wanted to go. He was just set on going. Well, yeah, it's like, what else am I going to do? You know, this is going to be a life experience. I'd be in the same like thought process. And he's in his last bit of high school. So he wanted to go and I can understand that. So Mitch and his friend Larry Marion each spent $10 on their ticket. So they were part that actually paid at this point in time. It would be about $69 per tickets. So they purchased their tickets on July 25th. At the last minute, though, Larry's mom, who was normally a very permissive person with her son, said that she was not comfortable with him going. She refused to let him go. Of course, Larry was extremely disappointed with the decision. He felt that his mom had completely flipped out about the entire situation. But regardless, he was not allowed to go. So at this point, Shirley, who is Mitch's mom, already hesitant about the situation, said now at this point she feels even more uncomfortable with her son going. She knows Larry's not going. He's less people to go with. It's just not safe. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I don't blame her. So, you know, now both his mom and his sister, who is 21-year-old Susan, are just trying to persuade him to change his mind to no avail. So Mitch had already taken time off from his job. He was not going to let this stop him. So he took Larry's available ticket and called Bonnie and said, hey, do you want to come? She's like, I don't know, I guess. (laughs) Bonnie was all in. Okay. So since Bonnie wasn't happy at work, she jumped at the chance of going. I wonder why she didn't go in the beginning. Like maybe it was just supposed to be a guy's thing. Perhaps. And then he's like, I'm going no matter what. So do you want to come with me? And she's like, yeah, let's go. Yeah. So it all just kind of changed at that point. So Mitch planned to pick her up from camp, which was about 125 miles from Brooklyn. And from there, they would make their way to Watkins Glen, which was an additional 145 miles away. So the festival was set for Saturday, July 28th, 1973. And on Thursday afternoon, um, which is July 26th, Mitch left his Flatbush neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York, and set out for Narrowsburg, where Bonnie was living and working at camp. So as Mitch headed out, Shirley called to him. She wanted to give him extra money just for a little cushion room there. That's nice. Either he didn't hear her or whatever, but regardless, he left the house. He did not acknowledge that she was calling after him. So he basically left with $25 in his pocket, which is equivalent to today's money, $172. And at that point, they weren't like overcharging for a bunch of crap like they do now. So that would probably get you plenty of food and plenty of gas, plenty of other things. You would think. However, I'll tell you more about that. So Mitch took the bus. He traveled to and a half hours to Narrowsburg, which was the town closest to Camp Wellmet. From there, he took a taxi to the campgrounds. He arrived just before midnight on Thursday night, now into the early Friday morning hours. So by this time, he had nearly burned through almost all of his money. Wow. So I don't know how much the bus was, how much food was along the way, but he had almost spent all of his money. Man, he underestimated. Yeah. So he called his family to check in, let him know that he arrived to the camp safely. He spoke with his sister, Susan, who's now finding out that he blew through most of his money. So can you Western Union me a couple bucks? So she's like, please don't go. You know, this is not a good idea. You have no money. Recipe for disaster. But he assured her that he would be fine and he would see her. It was either, according 
according to some sources, Sunday or Monday after the concert. So Bonnie requested time off of work to go to the concert, but her employer refused. She was already frustrated and disgusted with her work situation, so she quit on the spot. She told her boss that she would be back on Monday to pick up her belongings as well as her final paycheck. So Mitch and Bonnie spent the night at the campgrounds, and on Friday, July 27th, they woke up, they ate breakfast in the dining hall, and then they started their weekend adventure together from there. So they hoped to make it to the venue by noon because that's when the concert gates opened, and this would allow them to choose their camping spot for the night and settle in. So it sounds like they had very little. It's not like they were carrying like tents and things like that. It sounds like they basically just had a sleeping bag, and and that was it. I mean, it's, it's not a lot of planning. Oh on these my kids. gosh! It's when you're 15 and 16 years old. It's like you're just living on the fly. Not you though. You would have had, no. had like tables and chairs and all this sort of stuff all packed away and ready to go. Yeah, I just like to be comfortable. And so these kids also went to like a gifted school, so they mid, were smart. You know, maybe not street smart, but like you know, book smart. They, you know, when you're what, what do you need when you're 15 and 16? They had a sleeping bag to lay in. And well, I can say I would be the same way. I'd be like, yeah, I know I'm going to live. That's all. Yeah. Really, I just want somewhere to sleep and I'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I'm like, no, a tent's certainly not going to be enough for me. You I need, need some appetizers and then maybe a charcuterie board. A charcuterie <laughs> board would be nice. Air conditioning would be nice. <laughs> a place to shower. Right. A, you know, a bed. You're not asking for too much. I'm not asking for much. Yeah. Please. I'm not high maintenance people. No. So um, getting a ride into Narrowsburg, again, that's the nearest town to the camp. That was easy because a large number of trucks and vans came and went from the camp throughout the day. The couple stood on the side of the road. They were carrying their sleeping bags and backpacks. They were waving at passing vehicles until a man driving a truck stopped and drove them into town. So again, this is what did I say? 1973? Hitchhiking is exceptionally common at this point. Yeah. This was a very highly sought out way of traveling. Sure. So I know in 2023, it's like completely a thing of the past. But again, at this point in time, this is very common. So they get a ride into town from this truck driver. As a driver got into town and pulled to the side of Highway 97, Bonnie and Mitch thanked him as they climbed down from his truck. This is the last verified sighting of Mitch and Bonnie. How do we know all this stuff leading up to this point? Um, the truck driver found out about okay. so it's just about them being missing from the evidence that's been collected. So yes, far. and uh, yeah, you'll find all out about that. So the truck driver remembers the teens standing on the side of the road. They were dressed in jeans and t-shirts. They were holding their sleeping bags on their backs. Bonnie stood at four foot eleven. She weighed ninety pounds. She had long wavy brown hair. Mitch was five foot seven and one hundred and forty pounds. He had gold rim glasses with brown shoulder length hair that he parted in the middle and had tied back. Mitch held a cardboard sign that Bonnie had made the night before with their intended destination of Watkins Glen written on it. Watkins Glen or bust. That's right. So that evening, a young woman named Ellen Sperling got a call and was told that Bonnie and Mitch would be staying in her dorm that night. So from what I could gather from the resources, Ellen was actually a student from John Dewey High School. She happened to be attending a summer program at Cornell University, which was about 24 miles from Watkins Glen. So she stayed up that night waiting for them to arrive. They never showed up. So Mitch's parents were the first to realize that something was wrong since Mitch did not come home from the concert when he planned to either Sunday or Monday. And obviously this time, no cell phones, probably in a remote area that doesn't have pay phones. Or if they did, then they were way backed up. So this is an upstate New York, Watkins Glen. So... 
You know, Mitch isn't coming home, and by Monday morning, panic was starting to set in as Shirley called Camp Well Met, just hoping that maybe when he brought Bonnie back to the camp, he just decided to stay for the night, and that's why he was delayed. So when she did call, she was told that they had not come back. So now, sick with worry, Mitch's dad, Sydney, and his daughter, Susan, drove into Brooklyn. They went to a Brooklyn precinct and reported the couple missing. They were met with great disrespect. Their worries were immediately brushed off, assuming that the pairs were runaways. They also indicated that there was nothing they could do since the camp where they were last seen was in Sullivan County. So in the meantime, Bonnie's parents, Ted and Ray, they were vacationing in Cape Cod. They had not even known that Bonnie left camp to go to the Summer Jam concert. So they know nothing. So let alone the fact that she's missing. So they found out on Tuesday when they came home to the Brooklyn Borough Park neighborhood and someone called from camp looking for Bonnie. So they're like, what? So they were told that Bonnie had gone away for the weekend and had not come back. Her parents were stricken with the unexpected and sudden news. They were also frustrated that the camp employers would allow their 15-year-old daughter to just leave without calling them to notify them. Well, I mean, they were using her for child labor, so to expect them, you know, anything else is probably... You know, I'd be pissed because I am trusting you guys to keep an eye on my 15-year-old who's employed with you. For sure. And then, you know, I'm sure once they hear that, you know, Mitch was involved, they're probably starting to think, okay, did Mitch take her somewhere? And, you know, did they elope or whatever? You know, I don't, you know you're hoping the best, obviously, right. but so many things go through your head. So Ted and Ray immediately set out for Camp Walmet, and from there they reported their daughter missing to local authorities. They were expecting help from police, but instead, just like with Sydney, their concerns were brushed off and completely dismissed. How? You'll hear. This is a joke. Since Bonnie was 15 and had quit her job in order to attend the concert, they chalked it up as yet another teen who had voluntarily disappeared. I'll run away or mm-hmm. whatever. Like, yeah, she just wants to be away from you guys and sure, she'll turn up. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. Ted and Ray got the impression that police had absolutely no intention of wasting their time looking for Bonnie. Three days before Bonnie went missing, she did write her parents a letter, and in her letter, she spoke about how much she appreciated her freedom while she was working at Camp Well Met. She hoped that her parents would allow her some of the same freedom when she came home at the end of the season. She assured them that she loved them very much. They received the letter shortly after returning from vacation. She wrote that she had dreams of traveling. So when they're reading this letter, it's giving them hope that maybe she's just trying to solidify her independence. She wants to travel. She wants to experience life and see the world. So at this point, they're like, okay, maybe that makes us feel a little bit better. Now they're holding out hope that she would be back in the fall to start school. So by August 3rd, a week had passed and there was still no sign of Mitch and Bonnie. So at this point, Sydney and Susan decided to drive to Watkins Glen to search for the couple, but they came up empty handed. They visited the local police department there, but they were told that there was nothing they could do since it was unknown if they had even made it to that location. And just like before, the case was deferred to Sullivan County Sheriff's Department where Narrowsburg, New York, was where they had left camp and gotten dropped into town. So the general message they were receiving at this point was that it was common for teenagers to leave home to join communes or cults since it was <laughs> it's the era. <laughs> like it's happening all over the place? Uh, according to this, yes. Okay. 
It was the era of freedom after a decades-long war. And you know how everyone like, oh, be free, you know, oh, I'm going to live life and travel. Yeah, I don't live know. it to the fullest? No, sure. Make mo- the most of your life. We only have so much left. So that's basically the gist that they were getting from any police department they visited. So in the meantime, Shirley stayed home. She was sitting by the phone just hoping beyond hope that Mitch would call. Both Mitch and Bonnie came from very strong, loving families. Though, of course, being teenagers, their parents didn't always know the depths of their feelings. They could not fathom, however, that their children would just run off without word. Yeah, and they're like smart, dependable kids. They, you know, both had a lot going for them. Mm -hmm. This is not like them. Right. So as the new school year was approaching, both sets of parents anxiously awaited to see will they come home in time for school to start. Yeah, because obviously they took it very seriously. They were doing very well. Yes. So, okay. Yeah. Like there's always the next thing. Like, please, just now maybe they'll show up. Yes. And uh, you just keep holding out hope. Yeah. So September arrived. The first day of school came. The first day of school went. There was still no sign of Mitch and Bonnie. At this point, they had a feeling of dread that something terrible must have happened to them. They were both very intelligent, dedicated students. No one believed that they would ever have willingly given up their dreams and future plans. Like they weren't talking about anything like that. You know, like, sure, Bonnie said, I want to travel, but I'm sure being the person she is, she was just thinking, you know, after I'm done with school and everything and I'm going to go travel and see things and study abroad or whatever. You know, it wasn't like I want to, you know, you guys don't listen to me. It wasn't like that bad home. You know, it's just nothing like that and again she cried about her father's illness she would never put this kind of stress on Uh, on her family there's no way so you know they now are just filled with dread so on top of it mitch had been scheduled to graduate early in january so i mean we're talking about a kid that's getting credits done early so that he can graduate early you got a few months left yeah So, I mean, the light was at the end of the tunnel. So he had already made plans to attend Brooklyn University, which was 10 minutes from home. Shirley and Sydney were aware of the fact that Mitch was disappointed about recently learning that they could not afford to send him to his dream college in Rochester, but they felt that he had come to terms with this. They refused to believe that their kids would jeopardize their futures by staying away for good. Ray also believed, like I said, that Bonnie would ever voluntarily disappear, knowing what it would do to her father, who also had health issues. It just wouldn't happen. Yeah. So the Sullivan County Sheriff's Department was technically in charge of the case, but they maintained the belief that the couple just ran away. Like, at least look into it, you stupid assholes. They didn't. Pardon my French. So they fear, oh, do we have to beep that or we're good? We're out of that time frame? We're out of the two minute time frame. Okay. So they theorized that knowing her parents were away on vacation, that she came home to get some money that she had been saving in order to run away because, of course, the neighbors did see her come back to the house. Her parents did not believe this since Bonnie only had the $80 in savings. Mitch's family also didn't believe that their son had run away since he was looking forward to getting his driver's license and even had a lesson scheduled for the Monday that he was supposed to be home. They're like, no way. Just Wouldn't nothing, happen. Nothing made sense. So they did say, you know, sure, Mitch did have a bit of a rebellious streak, but he was also excited about finishing high school and moving on to college. Yeah, I mean, he, he wanted certain things and, you know, he wanted to go to this concert. I can, I would be very similar. You right. Know, I get it. So now that the school year had started, the parents could no longer contain their worry. But after more than six weeks passed without word from Bonnie or Mitch, law enforcement continued to refuse to take their disappearances seriously. What's the deal, man? And I can't imagine as a parent how that must feel. When you expect 
you're here to help and serve. And my 15 and 16 year old are, are gone. Right. And this isn't like them to just be rushed off like that. I can't imagine how frustrating that would be. Well, they probably get told like, well, I'll come back in another week or two. Come back in. Okay. Well, I'm sure this uh, come back. It's like, okay, you've told me this 17 times. They're not here. They're not here. We've heard nothing like at least look into it. Right. So police continued to dismiss the idea of foul play or the fact that this was absolutely out of character for the teens. The Bickwit and Weiser families decided to take matters into their own hands, so they launched their own investigation into what happened to the couple. Wow. Because I would, too. I wouldn't just sit around and do nothing just because they refused to help. Like, you have to do something. So they did everything they could to bring attention to the case. They wrote hundreds of letters to police departments and their local congressmen. They also spoke with the newspapers, radio stations around the country. They mailed out thousands of missing person flyers to more than 500 American Indian missions because there was ideas that they had like joined a mission as well as 300 youth hostels, various runaway centers, but they were no closer to finding their son or daughter. Both families contacted psychics. That's how desperate they were getting. One indicated that they were somewhere cold like New Hampshire or Vermont. Another mentioned California. Basically, it it didn't help. So they mentioned everywhere. Mm -hmm. So Ray contacted the FBI. They indicated that they had no jurisdiction since the crime had not crossed state lines because they were staying in New York. So they also contacted the Social Security Administration. They found that neither Mitch nor Bonnie had earned any wages in the time that they were missing. Okay. Could they have been paid under the table? Yeah, sure. sure, But classmates from John Dewey High School came together to assist with the search to help find their missing friends. In January of 1974, it, you know, it's, it's coming and going and Mitchell is set to graduate at that point. He never came back, you know, so it's clear that something bad is going on. You know, the whole time you were kind of saying in the beginning, I was thinking, okay, maybe they, you know, got on some psychedelic mushrooms or something or LSD and they're like, you know, let's just run off and get married together and like never talk to anybody or, you know, some crazy ideas. And they're just, you know, at some point they would have to get jobs. Right. You know, they're, they're smart people probably could be, you know, qualified for pretty decent jobs right and not be paid under the table so unless they completely wanted to stay off the grid which i don't know if they would have the smarts to do that you know and there's no indication to believe that that would be the case right and then you'd think that there'd be leads somewhere like what else happened so we'll we'll keep going so during valentine's day the classmates at their high school held a have a heart sale they sold candy caramel apples t-shirts and other items to help raise money to assist in the search as both families needed the financial assistance. Ted wasn't able to work because of his health issues. Ray was working at a retail store in Manhattan. Sydney ground lenses for prescription glasses and Shirley was in the process of job hunting. The parents had saved some money for their children's college educations. They were now spending this money to help search for them. So Ray told newspapers, the costs keep going up, but how can I ever put a price tag on my daughter? Right. You're willing to do anything. Of course. So the students were able to collect $675, which is $4,634 in 2023. This helped the Bickwits and Weisers hire a private investigator. Even with the help of the PI, there was still no sign of Mitch or Bonnie. The silence and the lack of the teenagers' presence in their households was palpable, and both families were 
absolutely grieving their disappearances. Yeah, you're just at home being reminded of them constantly. Oh, um, awful. To walk past their bedrooms. Like, what else could I be doing right now to try to find them? Oh, just such a sick, desperate feeling, I'm sure. So several theories about their disappearances emerged, though none of them could be proven as true. Some classmates speculated that the couple used a trip to run away and elope. Their families had not known that during the summer they had secretly exchanged rings. However, there was nothing to suggest that they got married and made things official. As the years passed, they held out hope that maybe they would return once Bonnie was a legal adult at age 18. And they were both officially legally adults. Yeah, and then come to their senses, too, and just be like, all right, uh, jig is up. We're, we're married here. We're sorry what we did. Right. But January 28th, 1976, which was Bonnie's 18th birthday, it came and went and there was no sign of them. So, you know, like you said, they keep like, okay, maybe this they'll hold out hope. Maybe this they'll hold out hope. But they're running out of that. So as the years continued to go by, Mitch's parents did relocate from New York to Tucson, Arizona in 1984 to improve Sydney's health. But they did pay extra money to ensure that the phone number in Arizona was listed in the New York City phone book just in case Mitch wanted to look them up. So they wanted to be sure he could he could find them. So Bonnie's father, Ted, sadly died in 1979 and never knew what happened to his daughter. Jeez. So um, in the meantime, Ray remained in Bonnie's childhood home. So in 1987, Sidney Weiser was home at Air- in his Arizona home when the phone rang. He answered and an operator told him that he had a collect call from Bonnie and asked if he would accept the charges. He excitedly told the operator he would and was met with silence on the other end. The operator explained that the other party had hung up. Oh, man. It's probably somebody screwing with right. them. That sucks. So if God, it, could you imagine? Like, I just got a little chills. And it's just like, could you imagine that feeling? No, because this is 1987. They disappeared in 1973. So yeah. that's a long time. Dickhead. Whoever that was screwing with them. If it truly was Bonnie that had called, she never ever made future attempts to contact Mitch's family or her own, it's likely it was nothing more than a cruel prank. Who does that? Some loser. So 25 years had come and gone in 1988. I'm sorry. Yeah. 1998 when the investigation, when the investigators decided to take a fresh look at the case. And when I'm saying fresh look, like this is a first look. (laughs) I was going to say, you mean a look? (laughs) So when Bonnie and Mitch disappeared, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children had not existed, but age-progressed photos were submitted to show what the couple could look like at age 40. Posters were created. They were shared around various internet sites as well as around the country. Some long-haul truckers also had pictures of the couple painted on the back of their trucks to help increase exposure of the case. So New York City Police Lieutenant in 1998 was Philip Mahoney. He admitted that the case had been very poorly handled when Mitch and Bonnie went missing. The original case file included irreplaceable dental records for both Bonnie and Mitch that had since been lost. Oh, my God. So their original records had been destroyed after their dentist had retired years earlier. So now we have zero dental records because they've lost them. Crazy. So, um, you know, Mahoney felt that the handling of the case was truly an embarrassment. The New York City PD was never the primary investigative unit on the case, but they did get involved because Mitch and Bonnie lived in Brooklyn. So because the couple was last seen in Narrowsburg, the case again belonged to Sullivan County Sheriff's Department. Unfortunately, their original case file had also been lost. (laughs) They've lost everything. That's so bad. It was ultimately discovered that police failed to interview anyone from the camp or speak with any of the couple's friends 
other than Bonnie's best friend, Michelle. So when I say they lost the case file, I, I don't really think there was anything in it. No. Yeah, that's their excuse for it. And mm-hmm. I, now, granted, it's not these you know, currently, what is this, the 90s or something? Or this 2000? was 1998. Okay. It's not their fault that the people who originally had it, you know, screwed up the whole case. Right. But, no. Ugh, that's still really, really disheartening. So in June of 2000, Bonnie and Mitch's classmates held a tree planting ceremony in their honor and remembrance. And was they were discussing, like, what can we do to get answers? because everyone was so angry that their disappearance had just been brushed off and no investigation had been done. So they called on Elliot Spitzer, who was a New York State Attorney General in 2000, to order a new statewide probe to pursue recommendations made by TV manhunter John Walsh in the Jewish Week newspaper. They were asking for assistance since the initial investigation had been botched. They felt that even after 27 years had passed, it wasn't too late to get closure. A representative from the office of Elliot Spitzer reached out and said that they would get in touch with the Sullivan County Sheriff Department and the New York City PD to check on the current status of the investigation before they could determine if it was appropriate to involve the attorney general. But then the September 11, 2001 attacks happened and all resources went to that. Sure. So that, you know, pushed everything off from there. Yeah. So in October of 2000, Mitch and Bonnie's case was featured on an episode of MSNBC's TV show called Missing Persons. As a result, they did get a handful of potential tips that were called in. One was from a man named Alan Smith. Police traveled to Alan's home in Providence, Rhode Island to interview him. He claimed that he attended the Watkins Glen Summer Jam. He said that he hitched a ride with an orange VW van and said that Mitch and Bonnie had also hitched a ride in that same van. It was the day after the concert, which would have been Sunday, July 29th. Alan couldn't recall the driver's name, but he remembered that the van had Pennsylvania license plates. Alan indicated that both he and the driver had been stoned that day, so the details were fuzzy. He said that Bonnie and Mitch were not doing drugs. They appeared to be sober. As they drove, the driver stopped to pick up another man. He was extremely stoned. He spent the ride passed out in the back. So Alan said that they made a stop along the way at either the Susquehanna. I know I'm saying this right, and I looked this damn thing up. Susquehanna River or the Chemung River to cool off. He wasn't sure which river they stopped at. Of course, it's July. It's hot. So he said that Bonnie had run into trouble while she was in the water. Mitch tried to save her, but they were both pulled downriver by the current, and they all assumed that the couple had drowned. Whoa. That's a complete random story. (laughs) Yes. Why didn't he come forward before? I don't know. Maybe he didn't hear about it or something? Uh, Who knows? Maybe he hadn't. Maybe that might be true, because now it's featured on MSNBC, and that's, that's why he's seeing it. So Alan said that rather than trying to get help for the teens, he and the driver simply got back in the van. They continued on their way. (laughs) That's kind of a crappy way to go about life. I don't know if it's because they were just stoned, you know, out of their gourds. I'm not sure what the deal was there. They said they called something in, but they said there was no mention that that never happened. Yeah. So detectives so he could be making it up. Too. He could be. So detectives felt that the story could be plausible. They asked Alan to ride with them in order to identify which spot they stopped to swim. Because again, he was confusing between two rivers or two was it rivers? Yes. Yeah. So Alan was unable to find the location. So detectives contacted various coroner's offices along both rivers to see if they had any records of any kind of bodies that had washed up that would have fit the descriptions of Mitch and Bonnie around that time frame. None of them did. Mm. 
So investigators ultimately determined that Allen was not telling the truth when he was a, when, when he was not able to pick out Mitch Urbani from a photo lineup. I mean, it's it's been a long time, so maybe it was. But how would you remember that it was them? You know, and there was like you said, six hundred thousand right. people at this thing. But then it there could have been any random couple. Did they drown in the river, or was right. he just making that up? Right. So he also could not describe the clothing that they were wearing when they were riding in the van. But again, he did say he was stoned, so the details were fuzzy. Yeah. So it's possible that drug involvement caused him to imagine the scenario, and he ultimately inserted Mitch and Bonnie into this scenario after he saw their case on TV. Yeah. So in April of 2001, several inmates from the Maryland prison contacted authorities to indicate that another inmate was confessing to killing Bonnie and Mitch. This particular inmate was convicted of killing two other people. He was interviewed by detectives. He admitted to killing the couple. However, he was unable to provide any details. He claimed to have been in New York during 19, or 1973. He drew a map of where he you know, supposedly killed them. Um, again, you know, this is a guy that is convicted of life in prison already for killing two other people. It's likely that he was just boasting to other inmates to try to like up his credibility. Yeah. So it's he had nothing to do with this. So another 15 years went by and a new lead came to light in 2016. Detectives gave little information about the information that they received, but they indicated that Mitch and Bonnie's bodies had been buried at a property near New York's Kuka Lake which was 30 minutes from Watkins Glen. So they searched this property for days and days. There was no sign of the missing teens. In 2020, a property in Bath, New York was searched after another tip came in. It was indicated that something must have been said about a staircase because they jackhammered someone's stairs. They ultimately had to replace the stairs. They found nothing. (sighs) That's too bad. So it's been 50 years since Mitch and Bonnie were last seen and the search remains ongoing. It's like they simply disappeared. Odds are they did not make it to the concert because they never made it to that dorm at Cornell. And they were dropped off by the trucker where? Uh, uh, right outside of Narrowsburg. Okay. So that's the last time they were like seen and, knowingly. Right. And you'd think somebody that had seen them somewhere at some point would come forward and say, yeah, I saw them at the concert or something. Yeah. Who knows? Again, 600,000 people right. get lost easily. So many people believe they came into foul play shortly after they left Narrowsburg where they were last seen alive. Others believe that they're still alive. And how far was Narrowsburg from the, the concert? Oh, that that a long a long way, like oh. 145 miles. Okay, yeah. So, um, again, some people think they're alive. There's no evidence to suggest that they ever made it to the Summer Jam Festival in Watkins Glen. Mitch's best friend Stuart spent hours combing through the thousands and thousands of pictures that had been taken at the fest. They never found any photos with Mitch and Bonnie in the back. It's likely they ran into fall play before they made it to the concert, so they hope, you know, that they so hope to attend. Larry, who was supposed to attend the concert with Mitch, said that he was haunted by feelings of guilt for years. Sure. I mean, nothing wrong with no, Larry, of obviously. Course. It's just, obviously, you're so closely attached to it. Mm-hmm. It's like, maybe if I would have went, it would have been different, you know, who knows? Who knows? I mean... Yeah, it doesn't matter because he didn't go. No. So at this point in time, Bonnie would be 65 years old. Mitch would be 66. Just going to say, I did a little quick math on my calculator here. uh, Yep, 66 years old. And then what sucks, so many people that went to the concert were much older than them. So they'd be in their 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, a lot of them no longer here. Right. But then their family members might have their photo albums with pictures from the concert. Sure. So Bonnie's mother, Ray, passed away in 2019. Mitch's dad 
dad, Sydney, passed away in April of 2000. It sounds like Mitch's mom is still alive. They didn't really say much about that. But after Sydney's passing, Susan, his sister, found a box of Mitch's baby teeth, which could now potentially be used for DNA purposes if it comes down to needing to. That's smart. Because, again, they've lost the dental records. Idiots. So, if, you know, God, if they come across a, bo- a skeleton, how, how can they prove that it's them? Yeah, well, now they can. Hopefully, yes. Right. And hopefully there's enough DNA. Yeah, um, exactly. So both Mitch and Bonnie's families remain devastated that so many years have gone by and they are no closer to having any kind of closure and knowing what happened to the couple. And what sucks is that, you know, Mitch ran out of money. Yes. So maybe there's, you know, they had to take up somebody and be like, hey, you could stay at my place and whatever. And God knows what happened. Who knows? And they're still so far away. So they can only imagine that something terrible would have kept them from ever coming home. And then, of course, these ideas haunt them. What what kind of tortures did they go through? Of course. Now, Bonnie still had some money, right? Bonnie took the $80 from her house. Did she take that with her? You know, there was never any mention of that. You would think so. One would think so. Yeah. You wouldn't leave it at your camp. Uh, yeah. It sounds especially like Mitch... Mitch- would- I'm sorry, go ahead. Mitch would be like, I, I ran out of money. Can we take your money? Exactly. And that's why I'm saying when Mitch called home and talked to his sister, Susan, it's likely he hadn't known about the $80 at that point because otherwise he would have told Susan, oh, don't worry about it. Bonnie's got the money. Because when Susan found out that Mitch was out of money, she was like, please don't go. Yeah. So, you know, their their siblings are still alive. So sad. Man, so. if I mean, if by some way that you guys are listening to this, Mitch and Bonnie, yeah, we'll gladly have you on. And, uh, you know, we're happy to break the story that you're still alive. But sadly, I don't think that that's yeah, the case. I don't think so. I, I truly horribly believe that some they ran into trouble before they ever got close to Watkins Glen and that their their bodies are buried somewhere. And the murderer is likely dead, too. <laughs> Probably. Who if, knows? Yeah. Well, they'd be upwards of who, however old they were at that time. They were only 15 and 16. So if it was an adult murderer, very much likely they could be gone. That's what I'm saying. So if you have any information about Mitch or Bonnie or any photo from the 1973 Watkins Glen Summer Jam and you scan the background, we have pictures posted of what they looked like at that point in time. There's age progress po- photos of what they look like now. Please contact the Sullivan County Sheriff's Department at 914-794-7100. So just so so sad to think that these two teenagers just went to a concert, all like all teenagers do. Right. I mean, how many different concerts did we go to when we were exactly that age? Several dozen. Exactly. But to just have them vanish and there's no idea what happened to them is just really soul crushing. So my heart's absolutely go out to the Wiser and Bickwit families because it's just terrible. Yeah, likewise. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for bringing the story. And yeah, who knows? Maybe something crazy will happen. And even if their families could get some closure to put them to rest, you know, and know what happened to them, maybe not have the full picture, but you just know that they're gone yep. and not be wondering, are they still out there alive? Right. You never know. You do hear these stories that do come full circle. So yeah. even though 50 years has passed, one never knows. We have more technology than ever to solve yeah. it. So and maybe somebody will come forward. Maybe somebody will stumble across about who knows. And if you have any other cases in mind that you wanted to share, you know, similarly, you can pop onto Instagram and uh, direct message us. That's where we get most of our suggestions mm-hmm. or on Patreon or any way to send us a message. We'll, we'll take it. I should probably send up a form for uh, for that just to make it more official to like su- suggest case suggestions. Yeah, whatever works. But um, yeah, for right now, just send a message on Instagram. But um, if you want to become part of the Crime and Coffee Couple Club 
um, and support this little mom and pop shop that we got going on over here. Um, help us with some coffee because uh, obviously there's a lot of it between the two of us. Um, we would very much appreciate it. Go ahead and become a patron and uh, we'll, we'll shout you out in the next episode. Then you get access to like uh, over 30 more episodes too. So Exactly. You win-win. You can support us and have extra episodes. And again, if you did become a patron and you're like, hey, what the heck? How come I'm not hearing my name? It's only because we're pre-recording. If you're watching YouTube, you're like, Allison, why are you wearing the same shirt twice in a row? It's because we did these back to back. Yeah. So we'll be back on us. Well, it's coming out as scheduled, but in terms of those Patreon shout outs, we'll be back on schedule the week following. Yep. So thank you so much for listening. We appreciate each and every one of you. Tell your friends, neighbors, uh, coworkers, all those things. And until next time. Bye. bye.